Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Take a second to think about all the people you know. Now think about all the people that they know and the people that those people know. It all forms a bustling, complicated, interconnected web. Welcome back to Web of Women, the show that dives into the identities and relationships that form who we are as individuals and communities. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. Each episode of Web of Women is a conversation. I'll kick things off by interviewing someone I know. Then my connection will pick someone from her web of connections and interview her. For this first season, I'm starting things off by talking to four women with whom I have different relationships. Last episode, I talked to one of my closest friends I've made in the work world, Jing Cao. She told me about immigrating to the U.S., growing up in a diverse bubble, and having that bubble popped. If you missed it, go back and check it out. This episode, I picked another former Bloomberg employee, but this time, someone many levels my senior. I'm Megan Murphy. I am a longtime journalist, former editor of Bloomberg Business Week. I'm in London, but I'm currently blissfully unemployed. Well, not totally unemployed, but... Well, you know, I have this family company, so it's a little bit... Yeah, it's not nothing. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And I'm now the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network, and I'm speaking... Badass, a badass. Despite that um, elevated title, I'm speaking to you from the floor of a friend of mine's apartment in New York. So to get started, I want to hear your story from the beginning. Like, where were you born? Where did you grow up? From the beginning? I actually couldn't remember there where I was born for a second. <laughs> um, I was born in Massachusetts. I actually don't know why I was born in Massachusetts. It's one of those things I tell people with dogs do for the rest of your life. You always have to say where you were born. And I say Massachusetts. I don't know why, because we weren't living there then. But we, I grew up for the very, very first years of my life in Connecticut in this like little rich kid's town called Darien. And then my, uh, my parents got divorced when I was very young, when I was three. And my mother uh, moved with my brother and I, who was six, five or six, to a suburb outside Chicago called Northbrook, weirdly because her best friend lived there at the time, her best friend from high school. And, you know, she wanted to make breaks. She wanted to move us. And so we moved. We moved to this town where she had no other connections. She didn't have a job. And so I spent all my growing up in this sort of idyllic childhood upbringing in this town called Northbrook, which is most famous for being the setting for most of John Hughes's movies, like Ferris Bueller Day Off or Sixteen Candles and Bre- or Breakfast Club, because he actually went to my high school. So wow. <laughs> all of the stuff you see in those movies is based on the high school I went to. So it's it's a weird claim to fame and it's all 100% accurate <laughs> about how 
<laughs> my high school was. That's hilarious. So I feel like I can fully imagine what your high school experience was like through movie. <laughs> well, I mean, it was very accurate in terms of jocks, geeks, you know, freaks, stoners, popular people, not popular people. I mean, I think the high school experience has changed, but it was a very, very stereotypical educational and you know, sort of social upbringing. The most sort of what I would call, not that anything is normal in suburban America, but the most typical version of, of what that was like. So where did you go from there? What was your path after leaving home? You know, I always, very common with these characters in some of these movies, I always knew I wanted to leave my little suburban town. You know, I lived in a cul-de-sac. Uh, my dad worked for, I don't, we don't really use the term civil service in America, do we? I get confused sometimes because I've been up here so long. But my dad was essentially a civil servant. He ran the park system in our town and... You know, I hate saying this because it sounds like bitchy and judgy, I guess, but I, I was very much like Bruce Springsteen. You know, we sort of listen to Bruce Springsteen or like angsty. I mean, I'm old, you know, I'm, I'm almost 45. So it's like we would listen to these music about people getting out of their shitty suburban towns and we'd be like, yeah, we're totally getting out of here. And so I tell people this all the time now is that, you know, when I left home at 18, you know, went to Yale, I, I literally never went back. You know, I, I went back a few times for holidays and stuff, but I never lived there again. I went back to law school in Chicago, but I never went back to my house. I never went back to my home. And, you know, I really still think of it as like this seminal getting out moment in so many ways, because then when I went to Yale, it was very, very different. And that experience, that transition, which was very difficult, um, really shaped, I think, who I was for so much of that early part of my career in life. Well, I one want to note that 45 is not old. <laughs> <laughs> and but I'm not I, 45, I'm still 44. Okay, so almost 45 is not old. <laughs> um, so when you were sort of becoming, discovering who you were in college and beyond, what drives you? What's sort of like your personal mission? Um, it may have changed over time, but I guess if it has changed, what do you think it was early in your career and what do you think it is now? I think early in my career and early in my life, the main thing was obviously not coming out and not accepting myself as gay, as a lesbian. And that for sure, you know, when I look back at the kind of person I was, the kind of professional I was, I mean, I always knew I was gay from the time I was really young, um, like probably 10, you know, I would make these very intense mixtapes for like my best friends, you know, and with like Peter Cetera. And, but when I, you know, growing up the way I did, it's not that, I mean, people forget how far it's come. Like in late eighties, nineties, youth culture, the people who were gay and there were God bless them for being out and open at those days. It was just not acceptable. You just wouldn't do that. You would be treated as a freak. I was very vested in being popular, you know, being cool girl. So, you know, I didn't come out until I was a lawyer. Even after I was a lawyer, I, now that I look back on it, my very first job, which I was a corporate lawyer, which seems so crazy now, in Silicon Valley, in the first big dot-com boom, um, I still wasn't out. And I, I only came out sort of in, I think 2000 it was, um, or 1999, maybe 2000. So I was always living only sort of like part of myself. You know, I was only not really a fully formed person because unless you're, I mean, not everyone believes in this, but I believe that unless you're bringing your 
it sounds trite, but it's true. Unless you're bringing your sort of whole self to what you do and who you are, it's not fulfilling for you professionally or obviously personally. So when I look at my life and I look at my early career, which is when I was a lawyer and went to law school and worked really hard to work at this big firm in Silicon Valley, it's only after I came out that then I really discovered this passion that I had for journalism, but it's really hard to say. I mean, it's not the writing, the telling stories, the giving people a glimpse into what people's lives are like. That was always the part that was my thing. You know, my thing was always, I just want to tell people a story. I just want to tell the stories. I didn't care so much about, like, I want to win a Pulitzer Prize for bringing somebody down, or I want to, like, expose corruption. I mean, I just wanted, I always just wanted to tell the story that someone told me. And journalists are motivated by very different things. But that for me, when I discovered that and when I was very lucky to have the opportunity to reflect on what I was good at and what I could do, it was that. And that's what led me on my sort of journalistic career. For me, the reason why I love journalism is really that storytelling. Like that's really why I wanted to start this new company because I think that storytelling, especially with people's actual voices, is such a powerful thing and is like what creates empathy between us as human beings. <laughs> and so I think that that is also what, what drew me into wanting to be a reporter. What I always think about my career and I always tell people is, um, you know, I'm mostly known as a financial journalist or a political journalist. But when I think of myself, I think of myself as a crime journalist and a course journalist because I spent most of my career and definitely the best part of my career in the courts every single day in London, going to whether it was at the Old Bailey, which is, you know, the criminal court, or whether it was in the high court seeing, you know, really lives unpicked, or you just never can see the full scale of humanity until you see, you know, rape trial, murder trial, but also high profile, high stakes. I mean, you, you see what people are capable of, you see how they lie, you see when they tell the truth, you see how people, and this really has shaped my worldview, particularly then when I became a political journalist, is like, there is no master plan. You know, spend six months in the courts reporting on every single day of everyday people in their worst possible moments of their life. And they're still just trying to do the best they can. And I'm fervently a believer that most people are good. Most people are trying to do their best. Most people, there's much more in common than you, that brings us together than brings us apart. And I think one of the biggest tragedies and myths that we've perpetuated in both the UK and the US is that we are divided, that this is such a divisive time. It's actually not true. Like most people are united by a fundamental sense of decency, respect, and humanity. And it, you know, it was a problem for me as a political reporter because before I was at our business week, as you know, I was the Washington bureau chief and I constantly would say, I think Trump is going to win just because I could see in communities in the Midwest where I'm from or other places that he was appealing to this people who kind of just wanted to get on, you know, and forget about Washington and just kind of move on with their lives. And that is most people, you know, and we really, we forget that at our peril. Going back for a second to your idyllic childhood, <laughs> um, what did you think that you wanted to be when you grew up, when you were a kid? 
I always wanted to be the same thing. It's so weird that I'm not, but I always wanted to be a private detective. I was obsessed with this like Snooper Troops, which was this computer game or like Sherlock Holmes or we had these elaborate board games that were about like secrets being passed, but I always wanted, always wanted to be a private detective. There was this series called McGurk, uh, which was about these kids investigating. And then later in life, actually this is a funny story. When I was a lawyer in California at this big firm in Palo Alto, I hated it. You know, it was all paperwork and dealing with clients and it was, these companies sucked and they weren't making anyone's lives any better. And, I applied to the FBI and one of the questions was um, on the FBI, like initial application form, which was intense, was how many times have you smoked marijuana? I wonder if they still ask this. It would be, I, I bet you they don't, but it was literally how many times have you smoked, have you smoked marijuana more than three times? Yes or no? And I thought to myself, well, yes, I have smoked marijuana more than three times, but every single, like every, anyone who knows me that knows that. I never was a big drug. I never, I don't do drugs. I'm a terrible pot smoker. I was always that person who was like, call the police. Like I'm paranoid, <laughs> you know? So, but while the answer was yes, on the more than three times, it was like maybe five and all those times, you know, were terrible. But so I dutifully checked the yes. And I remember they sent me this, I wish I had saved it. They sent me this really stern letter that was like, due to your avowed drug history, this must have been 2000, you know, dear Miss Murphy, due to your avowed drug history, we certainly cannot consider you as an applicant for the FBI. And I just thought, Jesus Christ, man, I should have lied. You know, I should have said no. But anyway, <laughs> so I, there was my dreams of being like Clarice Starling or whatever. But no, I did pursue it, you know, up until I was like, you know, 25, 26. It seems like what I'm getting here is that maybe you should have a true crime podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, I know. I thought about that. I'm like, whenever I see you know, such a genre now, these docudramas that, um, but I think, well, because I was, you know, I also was a crime, then I, I was a crime reporter for so long, which is almost the same thing, but you know, that's why it is so popular as we were discussing is popular isn't the right word, but why it strikes such a chord with people is because it's real, real life, you know, and real pain. And I always say, you never know, you can't be in the courts as long as I do and, and not know what is true, which is that you never know what someone's going to do in a certain situation. And you certainly never knew. Do you, you think you know what you're going to do and you don't. You don't know what you're going to do if something happens. And I think people forget that as well, that if you're pushed or somebody tries to do something to your family or you're opportunistic or you're a million dollars in debt, trust me, you do not know what you're capable of doing. <laughs> this is sort of a cutesy question, but I think it's interesting. <laughs> what do you want to be when you grow up now? I mean, right now, I'm really happy with taking time off. You know, I had a really intense career for like 20 years and intense to a point that was very unhealthy. You know, if you wanted the definition of someone who was incapable of focusing concentration more than two minutes to look at their stupid emails or their um, texts, that had gotten quite bad. And I think more that people talk about that and sort of the attention deficit disorder, but they talk less about the sort of megalomania that comes along with that, you know, in terms of people believe they're far more important than they are. I hate to say that, but it's true. And I think it fills 
such a void in our lives now just because people feel disassociated with society and what they can do to make things better and people feel really disempowered. And that's a real shame. So, and while I say I do nothing, you know, I still do some broadcasting and conferences and stuff, but, you know, I help with my family company. But I I am working on a book. I, I think I've said this for many years, that it's the golden age of content for sure, but it's definitely the worst age for journalism. And those are two very different things. Journalism has become content, and it's very rare to see the true form, even in our most vaunted institutions. It's still just carrying water and bullshit most of the time. I hate to say that, but it's true, including when I was an editor and responsible for coverage. It's just really hard to, to break through and do real stories. And the greatest joy of my life was when I was at Business Week to be able to tell longer form stories that, as we were discussing, but it's really rare to be able to do that now. So in my next iteration, I want to be a pure content provider. So in a very fiction way. So I want to tell stories about segments and parts of our experience that are underexplored, you know, some of which we've talked about today, but a lot about is, is just people's own frailties, weaknesses, um, really come to grips with sort of almost a subterranean aspect of, of who we all really are. And I think that's underdeveloped. If that wow. That's awesome. I'm excited to read this book. I'm excited too, but it's pretty dark. <laughs> we'll see. How do politics affect your life? Like, do you feel politically active? How do you sort of relate to that big thing that we call politics? I feel very active because... I still have a lot of access, you know, so I still see and talk and meet with people who are influential in the way that Washington is influential. So it's very, very important to me. So so let me step back. People say to me all the time now, I can't believe you're so political now. I can't believe you've outed yourself as like a liberal. Okay, um, sure, you know, like, hands up, guess what, you know, I'm liberal, you know, like, I'm an LGBT woman who lives in London and Washington and believes in a very liberal set of ideals about what society should progress to that is going to make us all better and work together in, in achieving, you know, better societal outcomes. So that has really surprised me that people feel still that, and you see this more in the States, you know, that there's some, you know, objectivity line. Like, it's not unobjective to say this presidency is a shit show or Theresa May's government, which is a disaster. You know, those are objective truths. You know, they're just, there's no factual dispute. And I, and that's what drives me crazy about journalism now. It's like, no, no, no. (laughs) These things, just like saying this wall is gray, those are truths. So don't think that that's being political. You know, I want a, an outcome, you know, I have a nearly four-year-old daughter. I want to build a society where that four-year-old daughter has a, just a decent shot at raising a family, getting well-educated, learning a skill, learning a trade, going out in the world, being happy, finding a partner, whether that's a man, whether that's a woman, whether that's an alien, you know, letting her to travel to different countries to see the broad kaleidoscopy of, of what this world is like. You know, 
it, that is not political. You know, that is just what, what people want. I want to allow people to come and exchange ideas and be able to work freely. You know, these, these ideas, we somehow paint them as left or right, or it's ludicrous. So for me, I view the trajectory in both countries and both the UK where I live a lot of the time now and in the US is so poor and intellectually bankrupt and sad in that we let the tyrannies of a small minority of people and the views of a very small minority of people to override, which is what I say, which is most people just want to get up in the morning, kiss their kids or kiss their partner or whatever, or get on the computer, go to work, work their jobs, go have a beer, go bowling, go to a movie, have some leisure time, go home and then have a chance to like take care of their sick mother and put their kids in school. Like, please remember that these are the things that animate most people on a daily basis, on a daily basis. It's like, can I earn enough money to take my kids on a holiday? Can I earn enough money to like be able to save something for retirement? It's not all the bullshit that we spend our time talking about. So what I'm political about is like, who are the candidates that are going to surface those ideas? You know, who are the candidates that are going to be passionately committed to helping working class people get a fair shake? Who are the people that are going to look at my community, LGBT community, and say, transgender people serving in the military, God bless them. I don't consider these ideals particularly liberal or democratic. I consider them just humanity. So that's how I evaluate people. How I evaluate candidates is... I want you to tell me how you are going to make the lives of people who work the hardest and get the least from our current structure. How are you going to help them? And like, that's what's important to me. And that's what drives me. And I feel like already in this 2020, which is going to be a core show, you know, we've already forgotten about that. It's already going back to identity politics and, you know, it's, it's really tragic. Part of the beginning of your answer also was about people saying that you've outed yourself as liberal. It brings up an interesting question, which is those people who were saying that to you, how do they fit into sort of your community? I always say to people, you know, I wrote for a British newspaper for a long time, the Financial Times. And it was only when I got to Washington in the U.S. that someone ever picked me up in a car and drove me to like MSNBC and put makeup on me and said, get on TV to talk about this. You know, and don't kid yourself. Like that is powerful. You know, that is, people are like, wow, I'm something. People want to hear me talk. People want to hear my opinions. Guess what? People actually don't want to hear your opinions. They're doing that because they have a channel that's dedicated to like people screaming at each other for, you know, set hours a day. And I think, as I said, it is the golden age of content. There is so much demand for content and talk and churn. So we've all become caught in this just constant feeding this beast that we think is a beast that then we're a part of and it's important. So I think people who tell me that, you know, are sort of like, why would you bite the hand that feeds you? And I think that hand needs to be bitten. And I think I'm not alone in saying this. Many, many people say this. You know, we got it pretty disastrously wrong in 2016, not because I buy into the the argument that we covered her about her email any less fairly. I certainly buy into the argument that and if any journalist tells you who was heading Washington or in Washington at that time or covering that campaign, if they thought that he would act, President Trump would act the way he's acted, they are lying. The general consensus was he'd get smart people around him and that the 
overtly racist, anti-immigration, the sort of worst impulses, that that was just an act. And what people got wrong is we people didn't really investigate what kind of president he would be. And that was a huge mistake. And I worry that, you know, it's such a cult of personality now. We've created this monster. Already you see it, you know, in the Democratic Party and people trying to create celebrity and trying to create the celebrity candidate. And who knows what's going to happen. But that, that probably doesn't end very well. In your, like, regular life, who do you turn to as, like, your community? Who do you think of as the people who are, like, your people? Who do I turn to as my community? Well, now, moms. <laughs> um, you know, moms who have unusual circumstances, like I have. So people who I start in my community are, you know, divorced moms, moms who have split custody schedules, moms who are, uh, that's my closest sort of every day. What I think about is how to raise a child from a divorced family that will have a sense of community. How do you develop families, alternative families? That's a huge focus of mine. And secondly, you know, on a much broader scale, it's really hard to find a community in Washington, particularly in Washington where I spend a ton of time, or London, that is passionate about things I just talked about, ordinary people, which is so shocking and sad when you think about it. It's like so popular to be a acolyte of the latest and greatest, you know, liberal cause persona. But it's so unpopular to be like, actually, I'm really interested in upskilling workers. And I'm really focused on, you know, how do we take communities where plants of manufacturing is lost and how do we actually take aged workers? What is the actual hard work we have to do to enable these people to find jobs? That is not a very big community of people talking about that, you know, and and that, what is crazy to me, is that is 70% of the country. So I'll give an example. You know, this town where in Wisconsin where my family company is, a cheese plant closed. 58 jobs. 58 jobs that paid 16 bucks an hour. Do you know how good 16 bucks an hour is in Northwest Wisconsin? So those 58 jobs, you know, what happens? What happens in communities like that when 58 jobs go? You know, this is the everyday experience of people. It's not just in the Midwest. You know, and that's a small community of people who are interested in talking about that kind of pretty wonky economic and job stuff that I'm particularly obsessed with. But whenever I find them, they're with me. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> all, all three of them. I'm going to start just like throwing people your way who fit that. <laughs> just to be like, hey, I think that you two need to try. Three people who want to talk about upskilling <laughs> uh, and Midwestern manufacturing, you know, please send them my way. A hundred percent. Have you ever felt radical? And if so, when? I feel a bit radical in the sense of being so focused on very mundane changes that will improve the lives of working class people. And that is like, that's not a great space to be in. But I never felt radical coming out as a lesbian. You know, I never felt radical. I felt empowered because I always view it as such a special community and such a um, fantastic community and such a vibrant community and such a community of strength. But, you know, I was, it never felt radical. It just felt like coming home or coming to who you really were. In thinking about your communities that you described and also like your family, how do your political views relate to theirs, to those different kinds of spheres? I mean, my mother is like, as far left as they get. 
but I'm also influenced obviously by my partner who is as far left as they get as well. So <laughs> it's, I think I have a very, a, a more pragmatic view. You know, I'm a worker, I'm a grifter, I'm a grinder. I've always worked hard, I believe, except for now. <laughs> and I think that that really shapes my views. I believe that people should be able to work a day and be able to do ordinary things, send their kids to college, pay for their parents, go out and have a nice meal. That's kind of it, you know, like, and have healthcare. So I view any views that are this sort of sturm und drang and the sort of paralysis that people get into about other things as slightly overblown. Now, that being said, the thing that most animated me politically this past year has been the Brett Kavanaugh case. And that was because, you know, it was very, felt very personal. He wasn't that far ahead of me at Yale. And I knew exactly what his experience had been and who he was. And what really bothered me was that he lied. You know, he lied so transparently and so openly. And this, this kind of goes to what we're saying throughout this conversation. I don't give a shit if he was drank too much in high school, so did I. I don't give a shit if he drank himself to puke to Yale, so did I. So did millions of us, you know. And But that you wouldn't have the honor before the court. And, and let's be very, very clear. I believe Dr. Ford says what happened to her happened. I also believe that it's very possible he doesn't remember that happening. But I was so stunned that someone would lie being a Supreme Court nominee to lie about stuff like your drinking behavior. And it was so shocking to my conscience. It really was such a re reawakening this last year. I thought, watching him, I just was like, I cannot believe this is happening. I cannot believe that a Supreme Court nominee would just, like, literally lies just dripping out of your mouth. And again, I don't view that as a political statement. It's objective that he lied. Like, objective. So, you can say, okay, it's not a big deal. Anyone would lie. Fine, that's your story. But I was a lawyer, man, you know, and you lie to the court. That's a really, really big deal. And it really stuck with me. And I think it was it was at that point, just watching that, I sort of realized how fundamentally broken America was and our, and our discourse was. And it was alarming, far more alarming than many, many, many other very alarming things have been. Once you, as an arbiter of the law, as judges are supposed to be, you have the power to send people to their death in some states. You know, you have the power to set precedent for generations to come on incredibly important things that you think it's okay to lie to senators under oath. That's not okay. And the fact that we're in that state as a country because of how politically divisive it is, that's very, very, very troubling. Hey, Shira. Hi, Jenny. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm okay. Just enjoying my Sunday. Well, as you know, this season of Web of Women is sponsored exclusively by Skype, which is a Microsoft product. And I use Skype. I used it for many of the interviews for Web of Women. And we also use it for meetings here at WMN. So I wanted to talk to you about how do you use Skype? Well, I really love having our meetings over Skype when you've been traveling. 
makes me feel really close to you because I can see your beautiful face and talk to you about all the things that matter most to our company. I really yeah. feel that. It's really important <laughs> because often our company works remotely. Skype is a software that enables the world's conversations. Millions of people and businesses use Skype to make free video and audio calls, whether they're one-on-one or with groups. You can also send instant messages and share files with other people. I do really love the GIF feature, I have to say. We're big on GIFs here. And Skype's free, which is an added bonus, given that we are a startup. So thanks to Skype for sponsoring this season of Web of Women. I also want to note that while Skype fuels conversations like the ones we have on this show, that doesn't necessarily mean that they approve of what's being said or agree with it. Those opinions belong to the people who are speaking them. I want to talk about another giant topic that's a part of identity, which is gender. So when was the first time that you felt aware of gender? I was always aware of my gender because I always wanted to be a boy when I was little. I used to tell people, I remember having to go to some weird psychologist when I was like very little, but I was a tomboy. You know, I wanted to play with the boys. I, um, it was frustrating to me that I was a girl because, you know, I played really competitive football or soccer, as we call it growing up and I played with the boys. I mean, I don't know if they still allow this, but I played on boys teams until I was 14, you know, until I went to high school boys traveling teams. So it's a kind of a weird combination of being cognizant of it, but being almost less cognizant of it. Cause I never, I feel like we were the, my generation was the golden generation on this because I never felt treated lesser, marginalized, overt sexism growing up. I never felt I had to be sexualized. I never felt I had to dress a certain way or look a certain way. I always knew I wasn't one of the like very pretty girls, but I, that wasn't a thing yet. It was before social media. It was before anorexia or sort of eating disorders really hit. It was, you could be smart and an athlete and be popular. You know, it wasn't, there were, these things weren't so black and white. And then through my career, I would say I never, I never really thought about it. I was always like, I'm smarter and tougher and better and work harder. So that was true. <laughs> so, you know, when I always tell people it's, I worked harder. I got up earlier. You know, I did a job where I woke up every day at four o'clock in the morning. It was only in my very, very late stages of my career that I felt sexism begin to bite for sure. And that was um, both eye-opening and, and, and sad for sure. How did you feel like sexism affected you when it did? It's just, true in the experience of most women who get to a certain position of seniority is what you start finding is that, you know, women have to be in the room to be able to influence decisions. And I never had any problem getting in the room. The biggest problem is you would find men, and I'll just be honest, who were so vastly less qualified or vastly less valuable or vastly less talented or original or innovative who still had the seat at the table. So yes, the problem is that women don't get enough seats at the table, but the other problem is there's so many men who shouldn't have their seats at the table anymore. And we don't talk enough about that. We don't talk about enough how institutions do not push out, you know, viewpoints and people who simply shouldn't be in those rooms anymore. So the attrition rate of sort of senior women in, in many organizations is very high at a senior level. The attrition rate at organizations we've worked at, for example, of, of similarly aged men is not the same. 
Why is that? Why is the attrition rate for women over the age of 45 in journalism nearly double the rate of men over the age of 45 in journalism? Is that because the men are protected or is that because the women are less good? I'm not a show pony. You know, I don't need to be trotted out a million times to, to be that woman speaker on the panel or the interviewer because they don't want all white men interviewing people. I'm the same. And in fact, I'm better. So I'm not getting there because I'm a woman, you know, or because I have blonde hair. I'm getting there because I work harder and I, and I do it better. You know, a lot of corporations, media organizations, it's just, and I'll put this some of the foot of the blame on women in that we have not pushed as hard as we could, largely due to childcare responsibilities, you know, largely due to a system being stacked against us. But I still look at places I've worked at and the top, let's say the top eight people out of 12 will be men, white men, you know, usually. And you get to a point where you feel like your voice and your talent and what you bring to the table, there's sort of nowhere left to go up. And you're constantly, you know, getting pushback or blowback or being, I've experienced bullying in my career. So it's very hard, I think, for senior women, you know, the support structures, you know, it's, I, I laugh about it comparing it to like lesbians. Like people think you have something in common just because you're lesbians, which, okay, you do, you're lesbians. But you also don't have a lot in common just because you're a senior executive at Goldman Sachs and I'm a senior executive at Bloomberg. Like that doesn't mean we have a lot in common other than that we're probably dealing with a lot of dicks, you know, and like, okay, that's, you know, I guess we can talk about effective strategies, but we have not managed to really move that conversation forward behind like, how do I deal with this? And yes, we talk a lot about putting more women at the table, but we talk less about getting rid of the people at the table who should no longer be there. And it takes really strong management to start meeting out voices that should no longer be there. It takes even stronger management than like promoting women. It takes people looking at it and being like, you know what, you know, the bloom's off the wrist. Because guess what? That happens to women all the time. We've talked a lot about content and storytelling. And I'm interested to hear, do you have a favorite or one of your favorite pieces of content or storytelling that comes to mind? It could be a movie. It could be a book. It could be an article. It could be whatever. Sort of what sticks with me now a little bit is Mad Men and Don Mary Burke and the trajectory of that, which I still think is like the greatest TV series of all time, because things just have not changed, you know, and it's totally fascinating. I don't know if you've ever watched it, but to, to watch it again, when you particularly with a focus on the women characters and your, my entire career, every woman's entire career is like encapsulated by Joan, you know, or, and sort of the struggle with people, as we've talked about, just kind of making the choices that are easier and bad, but they want to have, pleasure and they're you know it's it's like how people actually make decisions is what they do you know people actually do do that thing they shouldn't have done because they were had five martinis at lunch you know people actually do screw over the secretary because you know it's just a reminder and what I always try to remind people is it's fine to be idealistic but don't expect people who are working their ass off and fighting through commutes or, you know, working three jobs and barely getting enough money to pay for fucking school supplies for their kids to be idealistic about your bullshit, you know, be idealistic about their bullshit, be idealistic about their struggle, be passionate about 
that struggle. Don't be passionate about yours. You know, like, oh, just, it drives me crazy. It's like, they don't have the luxury of focusing on esoteric ideas. You know, people's, most people's lives are occupied every day with the struggle of their lives to make it better. And I don't know where we lost that, but we, we did. Okay. Final question. What has your relationship been throughout your life with religion? Well, I was raised really strictly Catholic. I was very conscious of God. You know, I went to Catholic Sunday school and I was confirmed and I, you know, believed, I guess. I, I must have believed. But obviously, it was never... I mean, I struggle with this now. I have, as I said, I have a nearly four-year-old. It did inform a lot of my morality. And I think we underestimate that. It's like, how do kids learn right and wrong? Well, they do through the everyday replication of behavior, but there's no question that for me growing up Catholic, there was a very heavy hand of the church on what was good and what was bad. And I think particularly for people who grew up Catholic, I mean, they send you around to the Stations of the Cross when you're like five years old. And it's like Jesus carrying like a huge heavy wooden cross and like blood tears out of his eyes. I mean, it's ludicrous. I mean, it's like, oh, great. That's like helpful. You know, you start going to confession and you're supposed to, I mean, I remember sitting in confession and you're just desperately trying to make up something that bad you did so that you can get the hell out of there and like do your 30 rosaries. I mean, it's, it's not a good way to grow up, but obviously being gay, I mean, in high school and college, I never went anymore and drifted away, but then yeah, there's two things about you know, one, I think Catholicism is one of the most corrupt, I mean, if not the most corrupt, venal, destructive organizations of any organization in the history of time now. And B, you know, their stance on LGBT is, I mean, I'm just isolating that as opposed to their stance on so many other things, is offensive on, I mean, a hundred different levels. I mean, what, because I'm gay? I've always known I was gay, that I'm somehow less valued in the eyes of a God. I mean, I'm atheist now. I don't believe in God. But even if you did, really, you think God thinks that? I seriously doubt that an all-loving, benign God would think that. So what's been more interesting is that my parents actually left the church. My mother, who was like a very, very devout Catholic, when I came out, so that was 1999 or 2000, left the church because she just couldn't deal with their views on the LGBT community. And my brother also who went to Notre Dame, who was, you know, he's also, I mean, I don't, I don't really know anyone who was in the church or grew up in the church who still is in the church. But interestingly, my current partner is Jewish and is a believer. Now I go to synagogue with her from time to time. And I often say, it's actually a little odd for me being with someone who believes in God, because we talk about this all the time. And I say, how can you believe? Like, it's obvious. This is, you know, this is science. This is, so that's been a journey for me and, and interesting to think about why can I not accept that um, another person might have faith? Why can I not accept that? Why? I always say I would like to be more spiritual. I mean, I don't believe I'm never going to believe, but it's interesting being with someone who does believe. I have no idea why she does. I don't know, but because it's in my mind, total bullshit, but, and just a myth that makes people do shit that they shouldn't do. But <laughs> Nevertheless, you know, to each their own. Sorry, that was kind of a negative answer. No, it was great. It was a fantastic answer, and I'm glad that I asked. Thank you for listening to this episode of Web of Women. 
For the month of February, it's all about that first link. I'm starting each chain. Then March will be all about link number two, and April the next step beyond. Next week, I'll be chatting with a brand new connection. Hi, I'm Denora Gattaccio. I'm the New York City Executive Director of Generation Citizen. For the next link in Megan's chain, she gets to pick someone who she wants to interview from her life. Who are you going to interview? I'm interviewing my partner, Hillary Rosen. Stay tuned for Episode 7 to hear their conversation about politics, gender, religion, and identity. I'm so excited to be embarking on this experiment with you to test out this new kind of podcast. If you have any questions or feedback, or if you want to start your own web, please email me at web at wondermedianetwork.com. You can also find us on Instagram at wmn.media and on Twitter at wmnmedia. This episode was produced by me, Jenny Kaplan, with help from Allie Lindenberg, Shira Atkins, and Ben Brower. A huge thanks to Overcoats for the music and to the women of the web for making this show possible. Talk to you next week. <laughs>